Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. If you've made it this far, I just want to congratulate you because today we are finally beginning the Sermon on the Mount. And we're not actually going to jump into the text of the sermon quite yet today, but this video is actually going to serve as more of an introduction to the sermon itself. And the main reason I'm doing that is because it's my conviction that if you can understand scripture from a big picture perspective, then it's a lot easier to go more in depth. And since we're not being exhaustive in our study of the Gospel of Matthew in this series, we're specifically looking at it from specific angles and tracking certain things, and we're really trying to grasp what Matthew's ultimate goal is behind everything that he's sharing here, because there's obviously so much more he could have shared, but he's choosing selectively what to share about the life and ministry of Christ. It's my conviction that if we can understand things from a big picture perspective, even if we're not exhaustive in these videos, later on you can go and you can study these passages, and because we've looked at the big picture, you'll be able to get even more in-depth study of these passages on your own personal study. And so ultimately the reason why I'm doing all these big picture things throughout this series, I know it might be kind of frustrating because everybody just wants to get to the text itself, but the reason I'm doing this is ultimately because I'm hoping that it will bless you and ultimately serve you in the future whenever you return to these passages in the future. And so what I'm wanting to do and what I'm wanting to accomplish in this video is I really want to answer two main questions. I want to answer the question of firstly, what does it seem like Jesus's purpose is when he's delivering the Sermon on the Mount? And secondly, what does it seem like Matthew's purpose is whenever he includes the Sermon on the Mount in his gospel? And it's, I know it might seem like those two questions are the same, but they're really not. And here's why. Uh, first off, whenever Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, it seems like, by and large, this is just a collection of teachings that he probably would have given at a bunch of different places, right? I don't think that we are to assume that Jesus only delivered these teachings at any one given point. Uh, in fact, in the Gospel of Luke, we have Jesus delivering what's described as a sermon on the plain, and a lot of the teachings are exactly the same. And so I think that these teachings, in many ways are an embodiment of the core structure, uh, the core body of Jesus' teachings. And so, yes, he did deliver them in this Sermon on the Mount, but I think at large it represents the big picture of his ministry. And so whenever he's delivering this, I don't think that it necessarily would have been this huge, big sermon prep where it was like, wow, this is just like the sermon to end all sermons. I don't know if he would have viewed it that way. I think that he would have viewed this as him just teaching people about what his kingdom is going to look like. And so I want to just look at the content of the sermon and figure out what it seems like Jesus thinks he is accomplishing through the sermon itself, right? But then we also have to look at Matthew's end of things, right? Because Matthew, he has taken all of Jesus's life and ministry and he has taken them and he has given them structure and he has selectively chosen what to include and what not to include. And so what we need to do is we need to look at where the Sermon on the Mount falls into the Gospel of Matthew, what comes before it, what comes after it, what is inside of it, and we need to figure out 
what does it seem like Matthew's goal is in sharing the sermon right here at this point in his gospel? And so that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to spend a lot more time on the first question than we are on the second one, because if you've been with me for the previous 15 videos, you've seen that I've already kind of laid the groundwork for what I think that Matthew's trying to accomplish. So we'll be able to go through that a lot quicker. But let's start with that first question. Why did Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount to begin with? What was Jesus' purpose? What were his motives behind this? And ultimately, right off the bat, I've just got to clarify, we're not going to be able to know this inherently, right? Because this would require me to be able to read Jesus' mind or to read Matthew's mind in order to answer these questions. But all we can do is we can look at the text of Scripture itself and try our best to discern what is being accomplished. And as best I can discern, Jesus has three primary goals behind this sermon. The first one is to fulfill prophecy. The second one is to fulfill the law. And the third one is to fulfill righteousness. And we're going to look at all three of these more in depth over the course of this video. But if you've read the Gospel of Matthew at all, you'll notice that I have gone out of my way to specifically choose language that references things that we have seen in the Gospel of Matthew so far, right? And that's because before we actually jump into this, I want to give a quick um, teaching, I guess you could say, on just Matthew's use of the word fulfillment in his gospel, right? Because throughout gospel, uh, Matthew's gospel, we see that Jesus is constantly fulfilling prophecy. And so Matthew's constantly saying this was done in order to fulfill prophecy, right? The Greek word is plerao, okay? And then in the Sermon on the Mount itself, Jesus will say, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. It's the same word, plerao. And then back whenever Jesus got baptized, he said that he needed to get baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. And that's the same Greek word there. And so Matthew seems to be intentionally using the word fulfill as one of Jesus's main purposes in his ministry. And so I think when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you can see that Jesus is actually fulfilling all three of these things through what he is teaching in this sermon. And so I kind of just use the structure of Matthew and the language of Matthew to kind of convey these points. But before we actually break each of these down, let me just give a brief thought on Matthew's use of the word fulfillment. And this thought is not my own thought. Uh, it's actually from this guy named Peter Lightheart, who I actually quoted, I quoted this exact same book uh, a few videos ago. And the reason why is not because this is the only book I've been looking at and stuff uh, in preparation for this study, uh, but it's because the book, Jesus Israel, that Peter Lightheart has written, uh, it's a nice companion piece to what we are accomplishing in this series, because we are specifically looking at Matthew's goal behind the gospel, and that's really what Lightheart is trying to address in his book. And so I really have been reading through this book in preparation for the series as well, and there's a lot of really good insights that he has. And so if I quote it from it a lot through the series, that's why. And this is what he has to say about Matthew's use of the word plerao, his use of the word fulfillment. Matthew has already begun to develop a theology of fulfillment. In every case that Matthew has used the word, fulfill describes something surprising. Fulfillment brings a twist. Fulfillment does not destroy the past, but it does bring in something new. Fulfillment brings the prophecy to its completion, but the completion is not what one might have expected. If Torah and prophets tell a story, the final chapter has a surprise ending. When we reach the end of the story, we can see that this is where the law and prophets were leading from the beginning, but that wasn't where we thought we were headed. 
Jesus personally fulfills the law and prophets in this surprising way in his own life and ministry. He never breaks the commandments of God, but his obedience is not like the obedience of the scribes and Pharisees. He teaches us to keep the law not in the way the scribes and Pharisees do, but to keep the law in the paradoxical and redemptive way that he does. And so what Lightheart is really highlighting here is that the way that Matthew uses the word fulfill is very similar to how we would use the word fulfill in English today. But there's a twist to every single one of Matthew's uses of the words fulfillment, right? Whenever it talks about a virgin giving birth, if you go read that passage in Isaiah, it doesn't sound like a literal virgin giving birth to a son who is literally God with us. But whenever you get to the gospel of Matthew, twist, it is. It's a literal virgin giving birth to a literal son. Whenever you read Hosea and it says, out of Egypt, I called my son. You don't expect this to be about the Messiah escaping from Israel. But when you read the Gospel of Matthew, plot twist, the Son of God is no longer just Israel. It is the Messiah. And Egypt is no longer the physical place Egypt, but Israel has become the new Egypt, right? And so throughout Matthew's Gospel, there's always a twist accompanying the word fulfill. And I think that that's going to be true throughout this Sermon on the Mount as well. So what we're going to do, just so I can kind of give you the layout of this video, we're going to talk about those three things that Jesus is doing in the sermon. He's fulfilling prophecy, he's fulfilling the law, and he's fulfilling righteousness. I'm going to defend how he's doing that through this sermon. And then at the very end of each point, I'm going to explain the twist that is really being communicated through the sermon itself. So let's talk about this first one, fulfilling prophecy. Matthew has demonstrated a keen interest in showing how Jesus fulfills prophecy. And that's throughout the entire gospel, not just the things that we've covered so far. It goes all the way to the second to last chapter. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. I know that it might not seem like he's fulfilling prophecy, but if you stick with me, you'll see that he actually is. The earliest Old Testament scriptures anticipate the day when God will establish a righteous kingdom over a right, sorry, sorry, establish a righteous king over a righteous kingdom. In many ways, the yearning for this coming king and kingdom is the driving storyline of all scripture. Uh, I have in the past, uh, even on this YouTube channel, I have chosen to describe the entire storyline of the Bible in seven words. God's commitment to dwelling with man again, right? It's my conviction that that is the overall storyline of scripture. It's God's commitment to dwelling with man again one day, right? He is restoring Eden. But the way that that is going to come can be summarized in a single Aramaic word, Maranatha, how we usually pronounce it in English, Maranatha right? This word means come Lord. And it is the driving force from Genesis to Revelation. Because as we're awaiting God's commitment to dwelling with man again, coming to its fruition, as we await the restored Eden, the restored creation, this ultimate promise we see through scripture is going to be fulfilled through the arrival of a coming king, the arrival of the Lord on the scene to fix everything and reign in truth and righteousness. From Genesis to Revelation, this is the storyline of Scripture. And what I want to do is I want to just give us a brief overview of that entire scriptural prophetic storyline, just so you can see that this is what Scripture is ultimately about. And then I'll explain how that plays into the Sermon on the Mount. So, starting right off the bat, Genesis chapter 3. Whenever man first sins, God turns to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. We don't have time to break down all the context of that in this video, but long story short, if you look at the context of this and you break it down, what God is promising is that eventually a righteous person 
from the human line, a human descendant from the line of woman will eventually rise and crush the serpent in order to bring about a restored Eden and a new creation. When you get to the end of Genesis, there's a lot of this, like there's a a very dense fleshing out of this theology throughout the book of Genesis. But for right now, just for the sake of time, let's move to the end of Genesis. Right before Jacob dies, he blesses all 12 of his sons. And whenever he turns to Jacob, he says this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. The word Shiloh means he unto whom it belongs and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Right? So if we're awaiting this ultimate ruler to show up and crush the serpent and reign in righteousness, we see that he's going to come from the line of Judah, right? The scepter is going to not depart from Judah. Judah will be the leading tribe of the people of Israel until the single person from Judah unto whom the scepter belong comes. And the obedience of all peoples, not just Israel, will belong to him. If you go to Numbers chapter 24, you've got this pagan guy named Balaam who is looking at the people of Israel. And this is what he says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down the sons of Sheth. So you have this pagan prophet speaking through the inspiration of God. And as he looks at the people of Israel, he says that there is a king that is going to come from you. He is not here yet, and he is not even near but he will arise. And the word for scepter there is the same word used in Genesis chapter 49 when you look at the Hebrew. So there's going to be this king to arise from Israel who will reign in righteousness. He will crush the serpent and he will rule over all peoples. You go to the book of Judges. You see that this king is absent in the land at that time period. Once the people have gone through the wilderness, they have conquered the land and they have started dwelling there. We read, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So there's no king in the land and everybody is doing their own thing. So they are not obeying the people of Judah, right? There is no obedience in the land. There is no righteousness. If anything, the serpent is the one conquering the people of Israel, right? And so we have a problem here. But then you flip to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And shortly after this woman named Hannah gives birth to her child named Samuel, she prays this amazing song. And this is what she says. Those who contend with Yahweh will be dismayed. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. Yahweh will render justice to the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his Mashiach, his anointed one. This is where we get the word Messiah, and it's one of the first times it shows up in the entire Bible, and it's specifically associated with this coming king. At the time that Hannah says this, there is no king in Israel. It is during the time period of the judges. Everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes. But Hannah says that this king will be established and he will reign in righteousness. Sure enough, a king is eventually established named Saul. And then after Saul comes a guy named David and God makes a covenant to David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is what he says. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. David, you see, is from the tribe of Judah. David is king. God turns to David from the tribe of Judah. And he says that your dynasty will last forever. And eventually there will be a king from you who will reign forever and ever in truth and righteousness and justice. 
So we see that this is the development of this whole thing. And as you're reading through the text of scripture, you're supposed to be longing for this king to arrive. You're supposed to be praying, Maranatha, Maranatha, come Lord, come Lord, where is this Messiah? Right? I see him, but he's not near. Right? That's what Balaam said. I can see him, but he's not close. And you're yearning for this Messiah to arrive, but he's not yet here. 2 Samuel 23, these are the last words of David, the public proclamation of David before he died. He says this, David, the son of Jesse declares, the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed, the Mashiach of God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. And this is what he says. He who rules over men as a righteous one, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, from brightness of the sun after rain. With the tender grass springing from the earth, truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured. So as David approaches death, he looks and he says, the righteous king is the one who is doing God's will. And he is the one who lives in the fear of God and not in the fear of man. And ultimately, David says that this king will come from his house because God has made an everlasting covenant to him. So as David dies, he calls himself a Mashiach of God. He is a Messiah, but he anticipates the Messiah to arrive. And David explicitly says that this Messiah will be a righteous one who rules in righteousness and he will rule by the fear of God and not by the fear of man, unlike many other politicians who rule by the fear of man. And so we fast forward. Eventually, the people of Israel start doing some horrible things and the kingdom is divided into two. So you have the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And during this time period, God starts sending prophets to get onto the people and to call them to action. And throughout these prophecies, we have more and more theology of this coming king being laid out, especially right here in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah says in chapter 9, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Later on in chapter 32, he says, Behold, a king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will, um, those who see will not be blinded and the ears of those who hear will pay attention and the heart of the hasty will discern knowledge and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. Later on, we see this, Isaiah chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A crushed reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will bring forth justice and truth. He will not be faint or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So through all of these texts from Isaiah, he anticipates the arrival of this ultimate child to come from the loins of David, this righteous branch to come from the stump of Jesse, this righteous king who will establish justice not merely in Israel, but through all the earth, right? The longing of the Old Testament scriptures is the arrival of this Messiah, this righteous king who will reign in righteousness and establish a righteous kingdom. We haven't talked about the Sermon on the Mount yet. I know, you're probably wondering where I'm heading with this. You'll see where I'm heading if you just hang with me. Psalm 110. Yahweh says to my Lord, this is David speaking, 
Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, have dominion in the midst of your enemies. So once again, this is David speaking about this coming descendant from his own loins. Yet he calls this descendant his own Lord as if the Lord that he's talking to already existed. And so he's a man, but in some way he's more than a man because God has already said this to him even though he has not yet been born. And he will have dominion. Later on, this is what Jeremiah says. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and prosper and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh our righteousness. Right? So throughout the Old Testament scriptures, every single book of the Bible is anticipating the arrival of this coming righteous king who will dwell in righteousness, who will establish justice and righteousness in the nations, and who will reign not according to his own righteousness, but according to God's righteousness. That's what Jeremiah says. His name will be Yahweh our righteousness. This is how it ties to the Sermon on the Mount. By the very nature of his sermon, Jesus is in many ways declaring himself to be this righteous king. He speaks with the authority of a king and he promises the kingdom of heaven and all its rewards to those who build their lives upon his words, specifically the words that he is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. Thus, Jesus, through his sermon, is intentionally fulfilling prophecy. By the very nature of the sermon he is delivering and by the claims he is making in that sermon, Jesus is saying, I am that righteous king. You might overlook this if you're just reading the sermon for application points. And you might miss this if you don't understand Matthew's overall goal. And you might miss this if you're just not a Jewish person living in that time period who knows of this Maranatha longing, right? Longing for the Lord to arrive. But Jesus knew that longing. He was a Jewish man who grew up in this culture. And he knew that the people were longing for this king. And he is that king. And so as he delivers this sermon, he is intentionally making claims and speaking with authority that demonstrates that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He is the righteous king that has been longed for throughout the entire Old Testament. You ready for the twist, though? The promised king doesn't look how they expected. The people of Israel expected the king to show up on a white horse to immediately crush all their enemies and deliver them from oppression. And Jesus is showing up to do that. And guess what? He will come back to ultimately do exactly what they expected. But right here, Jesus is a meek and mild teacher sitting on top of a mountain, speaking words of truth to people. And so, yes, he declares himself the righteous king, but he's not wearing a crown. He's not sitting on a royal steed. Instead, he is humbly sitting with his disciples gathered around his feet. Disciples from all different walks of life. Fishermen, right? People who are from Galilee. He doesn't look like they would expect. And so the twist is that the righteous king they longed for has arrived, but he doesn't look how they expected. That's how Jesus is fulfilling prophecy through giving the Sermon on the Mount. But now let's talk about how he fulfilled the law. Because this is something that Jesus claims in the sermon itself. He says that he did not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. And interestingly, he is actually fulfilling the law by giving the sermon right here, right now. And he's doing this in three different ways. Firstly, he's doing it through what he is doing. Contrary to common misconceptions, Jesus is neither changing nor nullifying the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Rather, he is explaining it. 
Uh, interestingly enough, just a few days ago, uh, at the time I'm recording this, I was spending time with somebody where we were debating about the nature of the Sermon on the Mount, and we were debating about the law itself. And he was explaining that whenever Jesus showed up on the scene and gave the Sermon on the Mount, he was actually changing the standard of the law, and he was giving it new meaning. That's not what Jesus is doing, though, but that is a common misconception of what people think he's doing. People are think like, oftentimes people will approach Jesus and they will suggest that he is trying to get rid of the law, that he is trying to change it, and that he's heightening its standard. That's not what Jesus is doing at all. Instead, he is staying consistent with the law. He was a Jewish man who followed the law, but what he's doing is he is explaining what the law truly meant from the very beginning. Right? So what he's doing is he's actually explaining the heart of God. And in doing that, he's fulfilling the law because he's laying down our groundwork and he's basically giving us a system by which to go back and interpret the Old Testament law, which is really, really cool. But not only is he fulfilling the law through what he is doing, but he's fulfilling the law through how he is doing it. You see, the people aren't shocked by the newness of his teaching. That's what people often... Um, that's another misconception people often have about the Sermon on the Mount. They'll look at this and they're like, wow, uh, everybody was amazed by it because everything Jesus said was brand new. That's actually not the case at all. And we're going to talk about that again in a second. If you actually look at the people's response to the Sermon on the Mount at the end of Matthew chapter 7, they're not shocked by the newness of Jesus' teachings. Rather, they're shocked by the authority with which he teaches, not as a rabbi giving his interpretation of the law, but as a king giving the definitive interpretation of the law. Right? There were plenty of rabbis at this time period who said things very similar to the things that Jesus says in this sermon. But the difference is that Jesus isn't simply giving his interpretation. When he speaks, he is saying that this is the interpretation of the law. And what he says is law. He speaks as if his own fingers were the ones that etched into the tablets of stone that wrote the Ten Commandments, right? He speaks as if he is the one who gives people entrance to the kingdom of heaven. At the end of this sermon, he says that people will come up to him and say, Lord, Lord, and they're going to ask to go into the kingdom of heaven, and he's going to be the one turning them away. So Jesus is not simply claiming that all, like really almost none of Jesus' teachings here are new. They're not new. Instead, he is explaining the true measure of the law, and he's doing that with authority. And that is how he is fulfilling the law. A third way that he fulfills the law is through why he is doing this, right? What, how, and why. By properly interpreting the law, Jesus fulfills the greater purpose of explaining why the law was needed in the first place, right? So as he goes through the law and as he begins to explain the law from his perspective and as he gives the definitive way to interpret the Old Testament law, Jesus demonstrates that the law was not given to produce righteousness, but to show one's need for righteousness. Jesus is demonstrating that we aren't righteous in and of ourselves and that we actually need some other form of righteousness if we are to make it to the kingdom of heaven. So like I said, nothing Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is new. All of it can be inferred by a close examination examination of and meditation upon the law itself, and much is reflected in the teachings of some of Jesus' contemporaries. If you read some of the interpretations from people at that time period, they say things very similar to what Jesus says in the sermon. And really, if you just reflect on the Old Testament itself from the right perspective, you can arrive at the very same conclusions. But Jesus is speaking as the authoritative one to correct the people who had taken this in the wrong direction. Jesus is simply giving the proper interpretation of the law, and in doing so, he is revealing the heart of God, 
right? Just as man looks to the outward appearance and the Lord looks to the heart. We're going to talk about that again in a second. Just as man looks at the outward appearance and the Lord looks to the heart, so Jesus is looking to the law and he is seeing the heart of God. So he is going internal. He is doing what only God can do, but he is doing that to God himself. He is discerning the heart of God by reading the law that God gave. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Another interesting thing to this is that the sermon itself, at the very beginning at least, roughly follows the sequence of the law being given to Israel. Uh, you don't want to take this too far, and that's why I didn't take it too far. I only included the beginning part of this sermon because um, I read some other commentaries and stuff where people tried to take it further and it seemed like it was more of a stretch. Uh, but what's interesting is um, as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we've been tracking how Matthew is basically walking through the story of the Old Testament and basically Jesus is walking in the footsteps of Israel. And where Matthew chapter 4 leaves off is at Exodus chapter 19, uh, like for the parallels, it's with Exodus chapter 19 with God arriving on Mount Sinai. Interestingly, when Jesus gives a Sermon on the Mount, it begins to walk through the following passages, right? He talks about um, the Ten Commandments, right? He quotes three of the Ten Commandments at the beginning of his sermon. Uh, one of them, he's actually not quoting the ten, like one of the Ten Commandments. He's actually quoting Leviticus chapter 19, but it's very similar to commandment number nine about false witness, right? But he actually talks about false vows, right? Uh, and so he, he quotes commandment six. He quotes commandment number seven. He actually references kind of commandment number nine. And then he continues to quote from Exodus chapter 21. He continues to uh, quote from Leviticus chapter 19 and referencing Exodus 21. And if you just look at this going down, the things that Jesus is addressing in his sermon at the beginning is literally just walking through Exodus chapters 20 and 21 and 22 and 23, and then also Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, and so it seems like Jesus is methodically fulfilling the law through the very nature of his sermon because he is going through the law as it was given to Israel starting in Exodus chapter 20, and he is explaining the heart behind the laws that God gave. And so that actually is really cool, and I just thought that was worth highlighting. So Jesus claims not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He does so by one, giving the law's proper interpretation, two, satisfying the law's demands, and three, accomplishing the law's intended purpose. These are the three ways where Jesus primarily fulfills the law, not only in this sermon, but also in his life, right? So he gives the law's proper interpretation in this sermon, but he satisfies the law's demands and accomplishes the law's intended purpose through ultimately his life in and of itself, right? Because what we see with the Old Testament law uh, through the Mosaic law given to them at Mount Sinai is that this law never seemed like it was intended to be an everlasting thing. So Jesus is not abolishing the law as much as he is bringing it to its intended conclusion because he is paving the way for the transition from the Old Covenant to the new covenant, right? And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's not abolishing it. He's just accomplishing its purpose through his life, his ministry, and his teachings. Here's the twist. As we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount, the entire law was given to point to Jesus and to follow him is to actually follow the law. At the very end of this sermon, Jesus is going to come to the conclusion that whoever lives their life based upon his words is like a wise man who built his house upon a solid rock. Whereas somebody who rejects his word is like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand, right? So Jesus is going to come to the conclusion that if you follow him, you are truly following the law because ultimately you are following the proper standard of righteousness that so many people had missed out on. 
which leads us to the third thing that Jesus is trying to accomplish through the Sermon on the Mount, and that is fulfilling righteousness. Matthew has demonstrated an interest in showing how Jesus fulfills righteousness. He showed this back in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus was baptized. He turned to John and said, this must be done in order to fulfill righteousness. So, and what's unique about this one is that this is another place, kind of like the last one, where Jesus explicitly says himself that it is his goal to do these things, right? So Matthew, he's constantly talking about how Jesus fulfills prophecy, but Jesus himself is the one who says that he has come to fulfill the law. So Jesus goes into his life knowing it is his goal to fulfill the law. At his baptism, he demonstrates that it is his goal to fulfill righteousness. So we know this is a conscious thing on Jesus' mind as he goes throughout his life. So I think that he's doing that in the sermon. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing right here. Uh, the central theme of the sermon itself is righteousness. Like if you look at Matthew 5 through 7 and you're trying to find one central theme, it is righteousness. The sermon revolves around the central theme of specifically embodying a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. This is Jesus' aspiration for and his demand of the citizens of his kingdom. Right, The righteousness that Jesus presents in the Sermon on the Mount is not simply a righteousness that is optional for the people of his kingdom. Rather, it is his demand, right? Because Jesus is a Jew who lives by the law. And the law is the law given by God for the people of God. And so Jesus says, here's the proper way to interpret the law. And here's the proper way to apply it. And if you don't have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, then you're not making it into the kingdom of heaven. And that might sound kind of scary, and you might be thinking, oh, whoa, David's about to ask us to return to the law and start submitting ourselves once again to the commandments of the Torah. That's not what I'm going to do, and you're going to see why through what I'm going to say right here. Because through fulfilling righteousness, Jesus is going to highlight what true righteousness actually is. So as Jesus goes through the sermon, this is what Jesus demonstrates. And you can find all these points through just breaking down the sermon itself. Firstly, the law wasn't given to save man, but to point out man's need for salvation. Secondly, the law wasn't given to make man righteous, but to point out his unrighteousness. In fact, the law itself couldn't make man righteous. Thirdly, the law wasn't given to produce the fear of man, but rather to produce the fear of God. Fourthly, from the very beginning, the law demanded more than mere external change. It was always pointing towards an internal change. Fifthly, True righteousness transcends the mere letter of the law. This is a big aspect of what Jesus is saying. If you read the letter of the law and apply it, you will have a form of righteousness, but it's not the actual righteousness that the law demands because you actually have to access the heart behind why the laws were given and you have to understand what the laws are really asking for. Sixthly, true righteousness isn't solely rooted in transformed actions. And seventhly, true righteousness is rooted in a transformed heart. That ultimately is what Jesus is arguing that the law was advocating. And so in order to follow the law, ultimately you have to have a transformed heart. But that's something the law can't do in and of itself. Which what Jesus is going to argue and what Jesus is going to demonstrate throughout this entire sermon is that righteousness, if man is to have it, cannot come from in and of himself. Right? And so if you take these seven things that Jesus has communicated through his sermon, you can come to these two conclusions. Firstly, an ex, uh, the external actions alone are not enough to satisfy the righteous demands of God. The law demands God's righteous standard, but it cannot itself make man righteous. 
And secondly, a man can obey the letter of the law without being right with God. This is something that Jesus is going to highlight at the very end of his sermon once again to reference this passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will stand before me and they will list out this whole list of amazing things they did in my name. But I will turn them away and say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Right? So Jesus is saying that one day people are going to show up to him and they're going to say, Jesus, we did our very best to follow the 613 commands of Torah. And we even went above and beyond and we did all these amazing things. And he says, that doesn't make you right with God. You need to know me. Right? And so what Jesus is highlighting in this sermon is that there is a form of righteousness that comes from the law, but that is not the form of righteousness that, God's, that God demands. However, the form of righteousness that God demands can be found in the law if you're reading the law correctly. That is what Jesus is communicating. And one thing I kind of already highlighted is that Jesus' primary goal is to highlight the true standard of righteousness in contrast to that being promoted by the scribes and Pharisees, right? He's going to explicitly say this throughout the sermon on multiple occasions where he's going to be like, hey, do this. Don't be like the scribes and Pharisees because they're being hypocrites, right? And so many times throughout the sermon, Jesus is going to form this contrast, which shows us that he is trying to demonstrate what true righteousness is. In fact, that is what he says if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And you've got to realize that at the time period that Jesus is giving this sermon, the scribes and the Pharisees are like the standard of righteousness in everybody's eyes. And so that has to be a baffling claim to people. How am I supposed to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees? Well, Jesus is giving the sermon to demonstrate how. Because what you have to understand is while the scribes and Pharisees rightly recognized the heightened righteousness demanded by the law, they built the hedge in the wrong direction. To their credit, the scribes and Pharisees looked at the law and they really wanted to honor God. And so what they did is they built a hedge around the law to make sure that they weren't violating it. However, they built the hedge in the wrong direction. If the law said, don't be within three feet of this person, they're like, I'm not going to get within five feet, right? If the law said, don't do work on the Sabbath, they're saying, I'm not even going to pick up grain on the Sabbath. I'm not going to walk beyond this distance on the Sabbath. I'm not going to pick up a mat on the Sabbath, right? If the law said that... Um, Oh, I'm blanking on other examples that we find in scripture. Uh, why am I blanking? Um, just all these different examples. Uh, if the law says, do this, they would build upon it and they would expand upon it and they would enforce other people to follow this as well. The issue is that they expanded upon it in the wrong way. And really there wasn't the need to expand upon it. Rather, they just needed to read it rightly. And so I think we can create this table and we can compare the perspective of righteousness being touted by the scribes and Pharisees, and we can contrast that with the perspective of righteousness being demanded by Jesus in the sermon. And so we see that the scribes and Pharisees, they heightened the law by increasing its external demands, and they did this via the oral law that they developed. And we can still access this oral law nowadays, right? It's This is where we get like the Talmud and the Midrash and all these different things. Uh, this is the oral law that rabbinic Judaism still develops and follows, right? They created this hedge around the law to try and keep them from violating the law, but unintentionally, it actually led them to violate the law because they missed the heart behind the law, right? So they, they heightened the law by increasing its external demands. 
In contrast, Jesus heightened the law by increasing its internal demands, namely in seeking God's heart. And maybe it's a misnomer to say that he heightened the law and that he increased its demands. Uh, I mainly just phrase it that way to contrast it with the scribes and Pharisees. But really what Jesus is arguing in the Sermon on the Mount is not that he's increasing anything. He's just explaining what the standard was from the beginning. And in doing that, you kind of have to increase the law's demands because ultimately the law itself was demanding that you go beyond what it was simply asking at face value. It was supposed to teach you a culture and a worldview. The scribes and the Pharisees promoted a righteousness that was rooted in the fear of men, an external righteousness that would impress humans, right? If you look at the various different things that the Pharisees did to build a hedge around the law, um, they might not have thought about this way. They would have thought that they were doing this out of reverence for God, but inherently all the things that they did were things that were external actions that would have ultimately led to the praise of men. That's why everybody viewed them as so righteous, right? These are the guys who stood on the street corners and they prayed. These are the people who always just walked around moping because they were fasting all the time and they just always looked like they were depriving themselves for the kingdom. And so everybody looked at them and they were like, wow. Those are some righteous people. These are the people who just had these giant phylacteries and these people who wouldn't even pick up a mat on the Sabbath day because that's how righteous they were. But ultimately, if you look at it, those are things that God isn't impressed by. Man might be impressed by them, but that's because man looks to the outward appearance and the Lord looks to the heart. So the Pharisees, their intentions were good and they wanted to obey God, but you can see who they truly feared by the way that they tried to obey God. They did it by exalting themselves, not exalting God. In contrast, Jesus promotes a righteousness that is rooted in the fear of God, which leads to an internal and external righteousness that would impress God. I was tempted here to just put an internal righteousness to contrast it with the scribes and Pharisees, but that's also... Um, That'd be a misnomer that a lot of people also get wrong about Jesus. Um, they will suggest that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is simply making things about the matters of the heart and it's not about external stuff at all. No, you're going to see that Jesus gives explicit commands about external ways where you can demonstrate this internal righteousness. What Jesus is demonstrating is that religion itself is not enough a relationship must precede it. This is actually something that uh, we see nowadays, right? People talk about, ooh, um, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. That's hogwash, right? Christianity is a religion, but it's a religion that is only properly exercised if it is preceded by a relationship, right? That's what we have to realize because the Pharisees, they were engaging in dead religion, right? They were simply going through the motions and trying to impress God. Well, Jesus is like, yeah, you should live differently. Things should change. You need to live different externally, but you can't be doing that because you're trying to impress people. You've got to do it because your heart has been changed by God and you have a desire to live for God. And therefore, regardless of what other people think, you're going to live differently. And so what Jesus is going to say is that some of the things that you do externally might not necessarily appear righteous to other people, and you might not receive the praise of men. In fact, people might hate you because of doing the things that I'm asking you to do, but you do them because you fear God, right? And so you have this contrast between the two types of righteousness. The Pharisees and scribes, they promoted a righteousness that was rooted in conformity to rules, uh, and, they uh, and through this, they emphasized performance over motive. 
right? So if you just look at how the Pharisees promoted following the law, it wasn't necessarily about your motive behind why you were doing things. It was simply about the performance itself. You picked up a mat on the Sabbath and I don't care why you did it. It was wrong, right? That is how they thought. It was about conforming to the rules that they had established. And these were just human traditions that they came up with, right? It wasn't things that God specifically demanded in the law. If they were only demanding the things that God demanded in the law, it would have been fine. But the thing is, they built this entire oral law and demanded that people conform to their human traditions. This is what we call legalism. In contrast, Jesus promoted a righteousness that was rooted in redemptive action, right? Emphasis on motive over performance. Throughout this sermon, Jesus is going to tell people to do things, not because they're big showy things that are super impressive and look really righteous, but simply because they are redemptive actions that try to plant little pockets of heaven in this broken world that we live in, right? That is what Jesus is encouraging his people to do. And so the righteousness that Jesus suggests and that Jesus promotes and that Jesus demands is a redemptive form of righteousness, not simply a righteousness that is about conforming to the social standards of that time and trying to look good in front of other people. The scribes and the Pharisees promoted a righteousness that leads to a moral life, and that's good and well. It will keep you from human punishment, right? If you would follow the law uh, prescribed by the Pharisees, and if you were to follow their form of righteousness, guess what? You're probably not going to get thrown in jail. You're probably not going to get stoned to death, right? Because that's what they would do, right? Uh, even in the story of the woman getting caught in adultery and them wanting to stone her to death, they're doing that because she broke the law, right? And they did have a just reason to say that. But if you simply conform to their rules, you could live a good moral life. Everybody would view you as a good moral person and you can make it through this life without so much as a driving ticket. However, just conforming to their standard of righteousness doesn't do anything about your relationship with God. You might look good before the eyes of man and you might live a good moral life, but that isn't enough to make you right in the eyes of God. Because guess what? Once again, and I keep quoting this verse, man looks to the outward appearance, the Lord looks to the heart. All because you're conforming externally to society's demands and you look like a good moral person does not mean you are good and moral because what Jesus is going to highlight throughout this sermon is that none of us is moral. He is the only person who is truly moral. And yes, the law will demand that you don't commit adultery, but ultimately what the law is highlighting is that we've got an issue that starts way before adultery. And it, it goes way down to the lust in our hearts. And God sees that, right? And so Jesus, on the other hand, promotes a righteousness that leads not to necessarily a moral life, but to eternal life. Now, is morality involved in that? Yes. But by society standards, sometimes you might be doing something that seems immoral because you're following God and not the ways of the world. But this righteousness that Jesus is promoting leads to eternal life. And this won't simply keep you from human punishment. It'll keep you from divine punishment, right? That is what Jesus is demanding of his followers. Because guess what? You might make it through life without getting thrown in jail, but then you might stand before God and he might cast you into hell. In contrast, you might serve God and you might be persecuted and you might be killed for your faith like many of his followers were. But guess what? Your reward will be great in heaven. And that is what Jesus is promoting. He is saying, don't live according to the fear of man. Live according to the fear of God. Don't fear the person who can kill your body. 
Fear the one who can kill your soul and cast it into hell, right? That is what Jesus is promoting in this Sermon on the Mount. And you can actually see this demonstrated as you just walk through the sermon. And I'm not going to spend a whole long time on this, but this is literally just sequentially walking through the sermon play by play. And he doesn't reference the scribes and Pharisees in every single passage, but every single thing he says can be contrasted by what the scribes and Pharisees did. The Pharisees promoted a righteousness built on pride and self-righteousness. Jesus promoted a righteousness built on humility and self-awareness. The Pharisees promoted a righteousness that exalted Israel to the world, right? Jesus says, no, you are to exalt God to the world. If you look at the Pharisees, they were all about promoting themselves and making themselves look better than everybody else. Israel was like, Jews were better than Gentiles. That's how they viewed everything. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world right? You are supposed to be exalting God to the nations. It's not just about Israel. The Pharisees, they misrepresented the law and prophets. Jesus, he fulfilled the law and the prophets. The Pharisees were, they promoted a righteousness that was insufficient to enter the kingdom, right? That's why Jesus says you have to surpass them. Jesus says that his righteousness is necessary to enter the kingdom, right? Theirs was insufficient. His is necessary. It's a demand. The Pharisees, they added human tradition to the law and in doing so violated the law. Jesus, his form of righteousness, it actually seeks the heart of the law and seeks to apply it beyond the mere demand of the law. Pharisaical righteousness, it seeks the praise of men. True righteousness seeks the praise of God. Pharisaical righteousness seeks the treasures of earth. True righteousness seeks the treasures in heaven. Pharisaical righteousness produces blind vision. True righteousness produces clear vision. Pharisaical righteousness tries to serve both God and man. True righteousness recognizes that you can't serve two masters and you must choose and you're going to serve God alone. Pharisaical righteousness seeks earthly satisfaction, whereas true righteousness seeks kingdom and righteousness. Pharisaical righteousness looks down upon others. True righteousness looks soberly upon others. Judge not lest ye be judged. For the same measure you pour out on others will be poured back on you. If you're going to judge somebody, you're going to do it sober-mindedly and you're going to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Pharisaical righteousness relies upon self for all things. I must do this. I must do that. I must not pick up my mat. I must not walk too far. I must not do this. I must not do that. However, true righteousness, it doesn't live a life filled with anxiety. Instead, it relies upon God for all things, realizing that if he will clothe the birds of the air, and it'll close the flowers of the fields, then he's going to take care of me too. Pharisaical righteousness focused on serving self, whereas true righteousness focused on serving others. What you would have others do to you, do to them. Pharisaical righteousness leads to destruction. True righteousness leads to life. Pharisaical righteousness may be externally impressive, but it's internally corrupt. True righteousness is consistent both internally and externally right? You have good trees, good fruit. Bad trees, bad fruit. Wolf and sh uh, uh, wolves dress like sheep, right? That's what pharisaical righteousness is. It looks good on the outside, but inside it's messed up. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a good tree producing good fruit. You're going to be consistent both inside and out because you're not putting on a show to impress men. You're being honest and you're living consistently with the God who sees all. Pharisaical righteousness is action-based and it cannot save, whereas true righteousness is relationship-based and it can save, right? If you're a Pharisee, you might follow the law to a T, but one day you'll stand before God and you will say, Lord, Lord, I did all these things in your name. Aren't you proud of me? I prophesied. I cast out demons. I did all these great things. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. However, if you follow the true righteousness being promoted by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he'll say, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter rest. Pharisaical righteousness neglects the words of Jesus, whereas true righteousness is built on the words of Jesus. This is how Jesus is fulfilling righteousness through the Sermon on the Mount. When the Pharisees built a hedge around the law, they went the wrong direction. Instead of adding external rules and regulations, they ought to have sought to understand God's heart behind the laws. The direction they went demonstrated who they truly feared, God, not man. They concerned themselves with being self-righteous in their own eyes, not truly righteous in God's eyes. They thought their righteousness and their blood made them God's people, but neither blood nor the law can save it all. That's something that Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees of and criticizing the Jews at large of throughout the entire gospel. If you think your works can save you, they can't. If you think that your blood can save you, you think just being an Israelite can save you, it can't. If you're simply wanting to go through this life as a good moral person, sure, just follow the law. But if you're wanting salvation, if you want to dwell in the future kingdom of heaven, you need a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. As Jesus demonstrates at the end of the sermon, one can follow the law, yet if they fail to grasp it at its heart, they'll be externally righteous and will try to boast before God, but he will cast them away saying, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. One who only follows the external demands of the law has missed the point of the law entirely and is no better than a worker of lawlessness. Let me repeat that again. One who follows the external demands of the law has missed the point of the law entirely and is no better than a worker of lawlessness. You might try to follow the law, but if you miss the entire heart behind why God gave the law itself, you're no better than a worker of lawlessness, and you might as well have just lived in sin your entire life. Sure, you might make the world better um, just by being a better moral person, but if that's the end goal, what was it all for? Right? And so Jesus is proving that you need to actually understand the heart of the law in order to follow it. And you ready for the twist? Actually, uh, okay, I, I forgot to give the conclusion, but we'll do the conclusion and the twist. <laughs> Thus, through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus fulfills righteousness by one, defining what true righteousness is, and two, identifying himself and his followers as those who embody it. Right? So right off that, let me just talk about that. This is what Jesus is doing. This is how he's fulfilling righteousness. First off, he's defining what true righteousness is. Uh, you can't fulfill righteousness unless you explain what genuine righteousness is, and we realize it's an unattainable standard for humans, right? But he also does this. Secondly, he identifies himself and his followers as those who embody it. So not only does he explain what true righteousness is, he explains where it can be found. And he says that it's both in him and his followers, right? If you build your life upon his words, you will have this righteousness. But at the same time, this righteousness can't be attained by human merit alone. Which leads us to the twist. This righteousness cannot be achieved through mere moral action. It is a righteousness that can only be received by faith. That is what Jesus is arguing for in the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. How can I be perfect? I'm, I've got so many issues. I thought that the law was just asking me not to commit adultery. That was hard enough. Now I learned that I'm guilty because of the lust in my heart. I can't avoid that. Well, Jesus says, exactly. Because the righteousness that you need to get into the kingdom of heaven is not a righteousness that can come from yourself. It is not a righteousness that comes through actions. It is not a righteousness that comes through blood. It is a righteousness that comes through faith. And your question is going to be, well, who do I put my faith in? The king sitting on the throne. The one sitting on the mountain right now delivering the sermon. He is the one who is fulfilling righteousness. Believe in him, you will be righteous. 
That is what Jesus is communicating. And therefore, that is how he is accomplishing those three purposes in this sermon. As he delivers this sermon, Jesus is doing so to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill the law, and to fulfill righteousness. Which then leads us to the last part of this video, which is going to be a lot briefer, believe me. It's going to be a lot briefer than the rest of this. What is Matthew's purpose? So we've talked about why it seems Jesus is delivering the sermon and what he's trying to accomplish in the text itself. But why didn't Matthew include the Sermon on the Mount where he included it right here? And what is he ultimately trying to accomplish through the Sermon on the Mount? Well, like the last one, I'm going to list three things, but I'm only going to reveal them one at a time. The first thing that Matthew is trying to accomplish here is that he is trying to show the authority of the king. Matthew has spent the first four chapters of his gospel authenticating Jesus, right? He cited prophecy, he cited story, he cited genealogies, he cited thing after thing after thing that demonstrated matter-of-factly that Jesus is the only legitimate person to have a claim to the throne of Israel and therefore to be the Messiah over all the nations, right? Matthew has demonstrated that. He's authenticated him. But now we have seen Jesus' authority promised now it's time to see his authority in place. And so what we see is that this story is bookended by things that are clearly about authority, right? This Sermon on the Mount, this discourse. It begins in the first two verses with Jesus ascending a mountain and sitting down with his people gathered around him as he begins to deliver his law. What does that sound like? Shouldn't sound surprising to say that this kind of sounds like God delivering the law to the people of Israel, right? Uh... You know, Moses went up on a mountain. Uh, throughout the entire Bible, the mount, uh, mountaintops are always associated as the meeting place between heaven and earth, right? And so, yes, uh, if you've actually been to Israel, you'll know that whenever we're talking about mountains here, we're really talking about like hills, but the language used is mountain, right? He climbed the mountain. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that whenever people climb mountains, it is to meet with God. Jesus goes up there and just like God delivered the law to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. So to Jesus, as the rightful king and as the rightful bridegroom, delivers his law to his people as they gather around him. And sure enough, if you go to the end of the sermon after Jesus is speaking, what is everybody amazed by? His authority. They're all perplexed and they're amazed and they're like, we've never heard of somebody speak with such authority. He doesn't speak like our scribes. He doesn't speak like the Pharisees. He doesn't speak like the rabbis. This guy speaks like a king who has just issued mandates and edicts and laws. And so what Matthew is accomplishing here can be seen by how he bookends the sermon. Jesus goes up with authority to deliver this sermon. And at the end, everybody is amazed by his authority. Matthew is demonstrating the authority of Jesus that he just set the groundwork for in the previous four chapters. And sure enough, if you go into the following chapters, we're going to see a series of miracles that further demonstrate Jesus' authority. So Jesus is going to speak words of authority in these chapters. And then in the, um, in the stories that follow that, we're going to see if he's all talk or if his actions back up his words. And we're going to see, spoiler alert, his actions do back up his words. So that's the first thing that Matthew is demonstrating there. But the second thing that he's doing is he is displaying the heart of the king right here. Um, because we haven't really seen that much about Jesus in the first four chapters, right? Uh, in the first chapter, we just see like a genealogy, right? And we get to see his birth. 
You go into chapter two and you see a little bit about his childhood, but even then he's a very passive character and Jesus doesn't really come to the forefront until chapter three, but even then that's at the very end. Chapter three starts about John the Baptist paving the way for Jesus. And then Jesus shows up at the end to get baptized. And then you go to Matthew chapter four and we get to see the character of Jesus whenever he goes off and he goes into the wilderness to be tested by Satan and he ultimately overcomes. So we see that he is a righteous king, the righteous king that was promised in the scriptures. And so we've seen his character and then we see him go and we start seeing his ministry and he's going around preaching repentance, but we really haven't gotten to know Jesus quite yet, right? I mean, you have David talking about himself as the sweet psalmist of Israel and we know these characters like you can go read about Moses in the Old Testament and you can perceive his character, right? You can go read about David in the Old Testament and you can perceive his character, you can go read the prophets and you can see the character of these people through their words. And then you can go later on into scripture and you can read the words of the apostle Paul or the apostle John, and you can read their character and you can see what they care about through the words that they say. We haven't quite gotten that with Jesus yet. And basically in Matthew chapters five through seven in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's opening up the doors so that we can see the character of Jesus. He's saying, okay, well, not only his character, but his heart right? What does Jesus care about? What is he really concerned with? What, now that we've seen that the righteous king has arrived, what is he primarily focused on? Everybody else was focused on overthrowing the Romans and following the Sabbath day perfectly and doing all this and doing all that. What does the truly righteous king actually concern himself with? What does he want from his people? What does he want for himself? What does he demand of a good life? How does he view righteousness if he is the embodiment of righteousness? These are the things that Matthew is trying to communicate through the sermon, right? This is who Jesus is. This is what he cares about. And this is setting the groundwork for everything to come. So he has to give this fairly early on in the gospel so that we just understand the things that make Jesus tick. This is what he cares about. These are the type of people that he seeks. These are the pe type of people who seek him. These are the things that he demands of his people. These are the things that he expects of his kingdom citizens, right? You know these things so that when you read the rest of the gospel, you can read that in light of what we've already read previously. And so he's demonstrating the authority of the king and he's demonstrating the heart of the king. But one of the chief things that Matthew is doing here is he is providing the manifesto of the kingdom. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount um, basically is to Matthew what Matthew is to the Bible in general. Right? I would ask you that basically the gospel of Matthew is itself is a Christian manifesto. It is basically laying the groundworks of what it means to be a Christian um, to its original audience. Right, The Sermon on the Mount is to Matthew what Matthew is to the rest of the Bible. This Sermon on the Mount right here is Jesus laying down what he views his kingdom to be. Right, And Matthew has taken this because he realizes it's a perfect representation of what we need to know about the kingdom, right? In it, Jesus is going to talk about the citizens of the kingdom, the character of the kingdom, the culture of the kingdom. He's going to talk about the expectations of the kingdom, the rules in the kingdom, the righteousness of the kingdom. And he's basically laying down exactly what it looks like to live in the kingdom of heaven and what it looks like to live like a kingdom citizen. That's what he's laying down here. And what I think Matthew is really trying to accomplish here is that this kingdom is nothing like the people expected. Right? Once again, there's a plot twist. The people, they had, for centuries and centuries and millennia even, they had been waiting for this righteous kingdom to arrive. But now that it's here, it looks way different than they'd expected. And that's because humans in our own sinful state 
we valued things differently than God valued them. And so whenever we thought about righteousness, we landed in the realms of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus is here to say, hey, if you're waiting for the righteous kingdom, this is what it's actually going to look like. It's not going to look like what you thought. And so he's laying out this manifesto of what the kingdom's going to look like so that those people who are wanting to join can decide early on whether or not they want to be part of it, right? Because Matthew said, hey, chapters one through four, here's the guy who I'm telling you, he's the Messiah through and through. There's no other option. He's the Messiah. And now Matthew chapters five through seven, he says, do you want to be on board? Because if you want to be on board, here's what you're signing up for, right? These are the type of people that he wants to seek him. This is what he expects of his people. And it's not like you might've expected, right? If you expected that it was all about receiving praise and honoring glory and triumphing over everybody else and saying, ha ha ha, I belong to the righteous kingdom. You don't. Matthew's like, that's not what it's about. Uh, it's not about pride. It's about humility. It's not about exaltation. It's about exalting God, right? It's not about proving that you're right. It's about being gracious and being loving and being kind and leaving the judgment to the king who in the end will ultimately take vengeance, right? That is what Matthew is communicating right here. And basically it's flipping the world on its head and it's flipping the worldview on its head too. It's basically communicating that everything they thought about the kingdom was kind of wrong. Uh, and so that I think is what Matthew is trying to accomplish when he's sharing the Sermon on the Mount at this point in his gospel. He's showing the authority of the king, the heart of the king, and the manifesto of the kingdom. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in. And I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate. This has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.